The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Tuesday, March the 2nd. If you're one of our Welsh listeners, I hope you had a grand St. David's Day. The former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, has been sentenced to a year in jail for corruption. If you find political corruption hard to follow, a good simple rule is that it gets worse as you head south. So virtually no corruption in Scandinavia and completely routine in Greece, uh, southern Italy. In France, if you assume corruption at the highest level, you're unlikely to be wrong. Another former president, Jacques Chirac, was sentenced to two years in prison for corruption while serving as mayor of Paris. He wound up uh, never doing a day in jail, of course. The Sarkozy case started with a 50 million euro payment he'd received for his presidential campaign from Libya's Colonel Gaddafi, uh, shortly thereafter sodomized to death at the behest of Hillary Clinton. Uh, In an effort to massage that little difficulty, Sarkozy offered a senior magistrate, Gilbert Azibert, a cushy sinecure on the Côte d'Azur. Very nice. Monsieur Azibert was convicted along with Sarkozy, standing together in the dock. Uh, Like Monsieur Chirac, Monsieur Sarkozy is unlikely to spend a night in an actual jail cell, but he will be wearing an electronic bracelet and subject to home confinement, which is quite something for a former head of state short of an actual coup. And in political terms, his dreams of returning to the Elysee Palace in next year's election are pretty much kaput. In political corruption news from the United Kingdom, the deputy leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition, Angela Rayner of the Labour Party, is in big trouble for buying a pair of personalised Apple AirPods. Have you seen these things? When politicians are interviewed from home on Skype, you can see them protruding from their ears. Not a good look, telly-wise, I tend to feel, but I'm a bit of a fuddy-duddy on that sort of thing. Anyway, Ms. Rayner got the top-of-the-line £249 AirPods and then claimed them on expenses. When Boris's lockdown without end began a year ago, members of Parliament were given an allowance of ten grand towards equipment to kit out their spare bedrooms as working home offices. It's supposed to be for computers and desks for the MP and any secretary or whatever. Angela Rayner could have got a Bluetooth earbud on Amazon for eight quid, but instead she spent 249 and then charged it to the taxpayer. 249 pounds is about 350 bucks. I'm not saying she's toast. I'm not saying she's in hot water. I'm not saying stick a fork in her, she's done, but she's got some splaining to do. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., entire extended families of so-called public servants live lives of pampered, decadent luxury, entirely detached from any plausible explanation as to why they are able to do so. Joe Biden the corrupt, dementia-riddled Chinese sock puppet currently propped up on the American throne has multiple homes, any one of which is beyond his Senate salary for the last half century. But nobody cares about that, so they're certainly not going to care about who paid 
for the state-of-the-art earbud through which he's fed his lines about saluting the Marines or correcting his mangling of uh, Sheila Jackson Lee's name or whatever. There is no equality before the law in Washington. So no one goes to jail over the illegal deep state interference and abuse of power in the 2016 election. But unemployed losers in Confederate T-shirts who wandered around the Capitol on January the 6th are looking at 10 years in the slammer. What an evil, evil, evil system. In Crossfire Hurricane, even the designated fall guy doesn't go to jail. Kevin Kleinsmith, the deputy assistant undersecretary of paperclips at the FBI, who pleaded guilty to doctoring an email for the corrupt and unwarranted FISA application on Carter Page, he wound up getting a slap on the wrist from a sympathetic judge and community service. Oh, but don't worry. Don't worry. Just you wait any day now. The Durham Report will be coming. The Durham Report. I'm going to read old Durham soon. I'm going to read old Durham soon. I'm going to read old Durham soon. Any day now, maybe late afternoon. As I always say, it's China's world. We just pay for it. The only major economy to grow in 2020 was, oh, go on, take a wild guess. Yes, the Chinese economy grew 2.3%. America's shrank 3.7%. Germany's shrank 5%. Japan's 5.3%. France's and Italy's and India's all over gulp 9% and the UK's down gulpy gulp over 11%. Compared with a year ago, there are now 259 more Chinese billionaires. Uh, That's more than the rest of the world added combined. So that's 259 more big shots to buy up influence around the West on behalf of Chairman Xi. China is now the first nation on Earth with more than a 1,000 billionaires. 1,058, to be precise. How many does America, which invented the concept, how many does America have? 696. For the first time in over half a millennium, Asia has more of the world's wealthiest individuals than the rest of the planet combined. Wake me up when they have a keynote address on that at CPAC. If you're not talking about China, you're not talking about anything that matters. Last week, we started what's meant to be a regular feature on Chinese penetration, uh, by which I mean uh, China buying up politicians like the entire Biden family and Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein and basically... (laughs) the entire California Democrat Party, or buying up institutions like uh, Canadian and UK universities. But instead, our first story on Chinese penetration was alarmingly literal. China administering COVID anal swab tests to US diplomats. Uh, But don't worry, Uh, The Politburo says it was just by accident. When an American national gets a Chinese anal swab, he can feel his economy contracting. As we reported, the Kenyans are not happy about this. Now the Japanese are also objecting. Addressing a press conference on Monday, Chief Cabinet Secretary Katsunobu Kato said Tokyo had made requests through the Japanese embassy in Beijing 
on how it conducts the polymerase chain reaction test for the coronavirus. This comes after several Japanese employees in Beijing rebuked China's carrying out anal swabs test, which they consider a violation of their human rights and dignity. Responding to the reports on controversial testing methods, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said on Monday that China has adjusted anti-epidemic measures in a scientific manner in accordance with relevant laws and regulations. Sayonara. That's... I thought you said you'd be getting another jar of Vaseline in Japanese. Aso. That's us. Oh in Japanese. Japanese citizens say the mandatory anal swabs cause them some psychological pain. The Chinese response is that they only stick it up there two inches and then give it a twist, which is basically what Beijing's been doing to the planet this last year. Just a little twist. China is going to anal swab the world. The butt stops here. America, Kenya... Japan. Oh, God, we might as well go all in and order up the new idents. It's the Mark Stein Show, anal swap watch. Come on, everybody. Drop your pants. Yeah, you're looking good. I'm going to sing my song. It won't take long. We do the anal swap till it makes you sob. Come on, let's twist again like we did last Thursday. Yeah, let's twist again like we did last week. Things were really throbbing. Hey, let's twist again. Let me hear you shriek. Ow! Well, around and around and up and up we go again. Oh, baby, let me hear you say, Asho! Again, come on, let's twist again. Like we did last Thursday. I'll see you again. Same time next week, yeah! Okay, that's enough of that. Chairman G, straight up with a twist, and he's ordering doubles for the entire planet. Uh, by the way, I'm thinking of making a duets album with that gal who sang the Star Mangled Banner at CPAC. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Yeah, that's up there with Leslie Nielsen in The Naked Gun. Those bright stripes and bright stars In the perilous night On our ramparts we Great compatriot. Uh, Last week, Joe Biden bombed Syria. This week, days later, the Danish government has ordered Syrian refugees to go home on the grounds that Syria is now safe. 
Mission accomplished, Joe. OK, let's swap out CPAC and the dawn's early light for Canadian sunset. The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content. Here we go, Andrew. It's all yours with a box of yesterday's Timbits cupcakes. Thanks, Mark. Across the Great White North, various public health commissars have decided that things like church services or shopping malls or sporting events are all just a little bit too risky in the era of COVID. But the real scourge, according to the commissars in the region of Peel, named after former British Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel, comes from children. Yes, even in their own homes, children are at the risk of unleashing a deadly plague if they're so much as allowed to walk the halls of the place they call home. A flyer sent out to families in the Peel region, which is just outside of Toronto in Ontario, has said that if a child is dismissed from school or daycare without symptoms because someone else in the classroom may have had symptoms of the COVID, they should self-isolate. And this means, according to the flyer, they should, quote, stay in a separate bedroom eat in a separate room apart from others, use a separate bathroom if possible, and if the child must leave their room, they should do so wearing a mask and staying two meters apart from others. Any other children who live in the household, well, they're allowed to roam the house and go get a snack from the kitchen if they'd like, but they're not to leave the house and certainly not to play with any others. Now, this is not for teenagers who might revel in the opportunity to spend a couple of weeks holed up in their bedroom getting room service and having a private ensuite bathroom. This is for children as young as three or four years old who have already been deprived through much of their lives, the ability to socialize and engage with their friends, but are now being told if someone else in one of their classes or daycare groups so much as has the sniffles and they have to go home because the class has been shut down, they are not even allowed to spend time with their parents and with their siblings under their own roof. And this is what passes for public health guidance in the region of Peel. And this is, I stress, even if a child has no symptoms whatsoever. We know from looking at the region of Peel, there are just a handful of cases that have actually permeated through schools. And when those have happened, there hasn't really been transmission at the school. So the idea of scapegoating children as young as three years old for a pandemic that is taking place pretty much anywhere but in schools is not just absurd, but downright evil. Peel Region resident Judy Martin wrote on Twitter that her 10-year-old granddaughter was sent home from school because someone else in the class had tested positive for COVID-19 and public health and instructed her mother to keep her in a room with no contact with the rest of the family for 14 days lest they get a $5,000 fine for non-compliance. As infectious disease specialist Martha Fulford told the Toronto Sun, I don't understand how any healthcare professional has moved so far away from the fundamentals of public health and of doing no harm that they would think that basically incarcerating a child in a room for 14 days is in any way justified. It wasn't that long ago that south of the border, people were up in arms because Donald Trump was supposedly keeping kids in cages, locked away from their parents, but when done under the auspices of public health advice in Canada, there is no outrage anywhere to be found because heaven forbid you question the almighty public health guidance. We've gone from telling people to stay home to save lives because there's no place safer than the home to now relegating children to their bedroom. 
putting kids who have already been deprived the right to live their lives under house arrest just because. Mac to you, Mark. Your comparison, Andrew, with uh, Trump, the evil orange separator of kids, is well put. Is it only evil when a distant marmalade-hued dictator does it? I didn't seriously think a lot of Peel region mums would go along with this garbage. But here we go, courtesy of Twitter. And so the 14-day isolation begins, says Red Island Dreamer. Nothing has broken my heart like the sound of my 10-year-old crying while I sit on the other side of the door and tell him 14 days will go quickly. Well, if it's breaking your heart, Red Island Dreamer, you could always open the door and hear from a self-described mum of three Uh, who says, uh, us two, I have my seven-year-old in isolation downstairs. He keeps messaging me on Facebook Messenger. Mummy, I'm lonely. My five-year-old wrote in his journal entry today that he is sad because his brother isn't here. I set up a baby monitor to let my eight-year-old ask for things. The five-year-old is using it to talk to the eight-year-old. A decade ago, in After America, I talked about what happens when a once-free people loses the habits of liberty. Uh, Leslie Gelb, the emeritus honcho at the U.S. Committee on Foreign Relations, and so nobody's idea of a right-winger at all, put it another way and warned about what happens when a society slumps into a mediocrity of spirit. Over the last year of Wu-Flu lockdown, millions of people apparently have lost the habits of liberty and slumped into a mediocrity of spirit to the point where when the government tells you to wall your kid up in the basement for a fortnight and communicate with him via a baby monitor, apparently sane mummies meekly comply. And those same mummies would be utterly bewildered if you accuse them of abusing their children. Oh, but I'm just following the science. Uh, Andrew mentioned Sir Robert Peel. He was not just a prime minister. He was also the founder of the Metropolitan Police and thus the inventor of modern policing. Let's check in with his successors in the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Okay, so what are today's Metropolitan Police up to? Well, here's a lady from Battersea, just south of the river in London, and the peelers decide to stop her and ask her where she's going. And she's going to get a coffee from Costa, or some such, and they tell her that that's two miles from her home, and thus not permitted. She wants a coffee. It's not a crime to stand in a street and social distancing when I go in the shop. She has a mask. I live in London. Two miles away. I live in London. Two miles away. This side of the road is and then the constable decides to announce it to the world at last. 
everyone, if you don't live in the area, you're not allowed to be here. It's against the law. And that's not true. That is not the law. But it is this bossy wanker copper's interpretation of the law, and in unfree England, that goes. The state Why of the law in this country. Arrest people for knife crime. Yeah, and that lady has grasped the point. If you're a flabby-assed Brit wanker copper, what would you rather do? Try and crack down on all the stabby stabbers who have the run of the London streets? Break up a so-called grooming gang of Islamic child sex slavers? Nah, easier to arrest a law-abiding citizen for the crime of being two miles from home in pursuit of a decaf macchiato. As I said a long time ago, with reference to the most famous motto of Her Majesty's police forces, the Mounties always get their man. But that's too much like hard work. So it's easier to get you instead. Boris Johnson's Britain. A year after useless Boris promised to send the coronavirus packing within 12 weeks, with a police force that betrays ever more openly Sir Robert Peel's famous dictum that the police are the public and the public are the police. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com TFOT. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Allied troops invade Germany, a prime minister assassinated, and a county fit for a president. It's March 1921. France's General de Goutte has posted a proclamation in German on all public buildings stating that, quote, this occupation constitutes in no fashion a measure of hostility toward the population. Under the reserve of strict observance of orders, which the military authority will judge indispensable to promulgate, there will be no interference with the economic life of the region, unquote. The military occupation follows the ultimatum given Berlin at the London Reparations Conference that unless Germany agreed to Allied demands of 226 billion marks, that's about 56 million American dollars, paid over 42 years, her cities would be occupied. A German counteroffer of 30 billion marks was rejected, as was a revised counteroffer of 90 billion gold marks over 30 years, plus the provision of construction materials to rebuild damaged properties in northern France. We are a long way from the land of beginning again. There's a land of 
The Prime Minister of Spain has been assassinated. Eduardo Dato was being driven home from Parliament when three Catalonian terrorists on a motorcycle pulled up alongside his car and shot him. It is less than a decade since the assassination of one of Senor Dato's predecessors as Prime Minister, José Canaleas. King Alfonso III has chosen to honour Eduardo Dato's sacrifice by conferring a dukedom on his widow. In the United States, Warren G. Harding is now the country's 29th president. On his inauguration day, the Senate met in special session and confirmed all of Mr. Harding's cabinet nominees. Also on inauguration day, the state of New Mexico carved a chunk out of Union County and a chunk out of Mora County and created a brand new Harding County in the president's honour. The outgoing chief executive, Woodrow Wilson, rode with Mr. Harding in the motor car to Congress and walked with the assistance of a cane into the Capitol. But still not fully recovered from a bout of ill health, he was overcome with fatigue and left before the ceremony began. The former president and his secretary of state, Bainbridge Colby, plan to start a law firm even though Mr. Wilson only practiced law for about four years, and that was three and a half decades ago. Notwithstanding the Allied incursion into Germany, the new presidency also marks the end of the World War, at least in America. Congress has passed a joint resolution declaring that the wartime emergency is over and has repealed almost all the emergency legislation, including the Sedition Act. Uh, on his last day in office, President Wilson signed the repeal of almost all of the war laws, except for the creation of the War Finance Corporation, the sale of Liberty Bonds, and a prohibition against trading with enemy nations. The new Secretary of War, John Weeks, has announced that U.S. troops will continue to occupy the Rhineland in Germany. In the Soviet Union, just a day after a rebellion broke out among Russian sailors on the island of Kotlin in the Gulf of Finland, the Kronstadt naval fortress has fallen to the anti-Bolsheviks. Elsewhere, Bolshevism marches on. Red Army troops have entered the city of Sukhumi within the Georgian Republic and helped Bolshevik sympathizers to proclaim the Abkhazian Soviet Socialist Republic. Where next? A Communist Party has been founded in Portugal. Uh, and in Italy, striking Croat and Slovene miners in Istria, supported by the Italian Socialist Party, have declared the Albona Republic in opposition to the pro-fascist mine owners. Prince Abdullah of Mecca, a direct descendant of Mohammed, has refused the offer of the throne of Mesopotamia, but has set his sights on territory to the west and entered the city of Amman, 
which he hopes with British backing will be the capital of a new kingdom. I'd rather be a private than a colonel in the army. A private has more fun when his day's work is done. And when he goes on hikes in every town he strikes, girls discover him and just smother him with things he likes. But girlies act so shy when Colonel passes by. He holds his head so high with dignity. So would you rather be a colonel with an eagle on your shoulder or a private with a chicken on your knee? Would you rather be a colonel with an eagle on your shoulder or a private with a chicken on your knee? Either is preferable to being a Brigadier General with a price on your head. In Ireland, Brigadier General H.R. Cumming, DSO, has been ambushed and killed at West Cork en route to preside over a court-martial of Sinn Féin revolutionaries. Brigadier Cumming and his escort had just crossed from County Kerry into County Cork when the attack began. The shooting continued for an hour, the rebels having with them a machine gun. The Brigadier General left his car, was shot in the head and died immediately. He is the highest-ranking officer to die in the present unrest. In reprisal for the attack, the mayor of Limerick and his immediate predecessor have been shot dead in their beds. Crown Prince Hirohito of Japan has become the first member of the royal family to leave his nation in more than 16 centuries. The future emperor boarded the battleship Katori at Yokohama to begin his voyage to Europe. Earl P. Halliburton has received a patent for his process of controlling well drilling by the rapid injection of cement. Mr. Halliburton is the proprietor of Oklahoma's New Method Oil Well Cementing Company, which is a somewhat unwieldy name and is more generally referred to in the industry as the Halliburton Company. Almost 900 people are dead after the sinking of the Singapore vessel, the SS Hong Mo, as it approached Swatow after departing Hong Kong and struck the White Rocks. No rescue was attempted until two days later, by which time the ship had broken in two and of its 1,135 passengers and 48 crew, only 268 survived. Following similar tributes in Britain and France, the new U.S. Congress has voted to approve the creation of an American Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to house the remains of an American military man whose identity will never be known. Hinley, Holland, Hinley, Squall, Ducks in McKinley, I can't find that long buffalo. Washington, Rural Bell in the White House, he's doing his best. He in the graveyard, he's taking his rest. He is gone. Long old time. Dr. Matthew Mann was for many years the gynecologist at Buffalo General Hospital. Two decades ago, he chanced to be at the Buffalo Exposition when President McKinley was shot by the anarchist Leon Chogosh. Dr. Mann had no experience in abdominal wounds, 
but made the decision in the fading afternoon light of a makeshift operating room at the Exposition First Aid Centre to operate to find and remove the elusive bullet and gave his patient ether as the president recited the Lord's Prayer. Dr. Mann has now died far less dramatically at the age of 75. King Nicholas of Montenegro, who lost his throne when his nation was merged into the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, has died in exile at Cap d'Antib at the age of 79. His son, Prince Danilo, promptly renounced any claim to the throne in favour of his 12-year-old nephew. The following day, the prince renounced his renunciation. And then, another 24 hours later, renounced the renunciation of his renunciation. His erratic behaviour has deeply disheartened Montenegro's monarchist community. General Auguste Mercier is dead at the age of 87. He was the French Minister of War at the centre of l'affaire Dreyfus. In the summer of 1894, it was he who decided that Alfred Dreyfus was guilty of treason and through these last 27 years has never wavered in that judgment, at least in public, until the day he died. Remember the eponymous heroine of Trilby singing that song? The playwright Paul Potter is best known as the author of the stage adaptation of that once notorious bohemian novel by George du Maurier. Trilby, you'll recall, is the name of an artist's model who falls under the spell of a fellow called Svengali. As successful as Mr. Potter's play was, its lasting legacy is not any memorable line of dialogue, but the distinctive short-brimmed hat with a sharp snap at the back worn by the lead actress in that first production. The Trilby has since become a most popular men's hat in Britain and elsewhere. Hats off to Paul Potter, dead at 68. And that's the way of the world, March 1921. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Robert Mignella. Uh, I do uh, I do hope I pronounced that correctly, Robert. Robert is a first-week founding member of the Mark Stein Club and my fellow Torontonian, so special greetings to him. Robert writes, Given the reports of forced labour, torture, rape and sterilisations of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang region, are we to expect jihadist reprisals against China somewhere in the world? If not, how come? 
Are Islamo-fascist attacks reserved exclusively for Western nations? If jihadists only target Christians, Jews, homosexuals and infidels, which threat is worse, China or Islam? Yeah, Robert, I think I actually touched on that in our occasional intro song, China Man, China Man. Is he cruel? Ask a Uyghur. Global Muslim complaints are meagre. They dig. Don't mess with the China man. That's it. The silence of Saudi Arabia, of Iran, of Turkey on the harvesting of Muslim body parts by Chairman Xi is very telling. The Chinese Communist Party is almost as openly racist as the U.S. Democrat Party has been for most of its history, but they know how to buy their friends. All kinds of countries that are supposed to be American allies, from uh, Pakistan to the Saudis, along with a lot of other uh, Muslim nations, from Bangladesh to Sudan, have been paid off by Beijing. And they like that Chinese money and that Chinese investment and those Chinese jobs. And they're not going to speak up for the poor old Uyghurs. Global Muslim complaints are meager. In uh, their finely calculated view, as seen from Riyadh and Tehran and all the other Muslim capitals, the Dar al-Islam extends to Paris and London and Dearborn, Michigan, uh, but not to Uyghur areas of China. As to which threat is worse, China or Islam? Fifteen years ago in America alone, I described the jihad as an opportunist infection feasting on Western weakness. I think that's also how Beijing sees it, and in that respect, they find it very useful. I'll read you a short passage from... America alone. I don't like to do the self-quoting thing, but this is from me 15 years ago. If a Sino-Russian strategic partnership has a certain logic to it, so in a darker way does a Sino-Russo-Euro-Muslim alliance of convenience. We, we've seen three quarters of that, by the way, in the joint um, Chinese-Russian-Iranian naval exercises uh, just recently. Back to me 15 years ago. Quote, I get a surprising amount of mail from Americans who say, oh, we're too big a bunch of politically correct blue state pusses to kick Islamo butt. But fortunately, the Ruskies and the Chaikoms have their own Muslim whack jobs and they won't be as squeamish as us wimps when it comes to sorting them out once and for all. Maybe one day... But right now they figure the jihad is America's problem and it's in their interest to keep it that way. Well, uh, that's what I said in America alone. And uh, I think we're actually seeing that play out, not least in the silence of almost every Muslim regime uh, on the atrocities perpetrated by Beijing on Chinese Muslims. <laughs> Mark Stein's Last Call. If you heard our Memorial Day show, you may recall me telling a story of my own New Hampshire town back in the Civil War when Caroline Grant returned from church one Sunday morning in 1863 and found on the family porch the coffins of her brother, 
her cousin and her fiancé. They had died within a few days of each other in Virginia. Nothing splendid or heroic, just an outbreak of measles in camp. But they, too, are among the glorious toll of war dead, for had there been no war, they would not have been dead. And Caroline Grant would not have come home to find three coffins on the porch. When this next story caught my eye, I heard a faint echo of Caroline's story from St. Louis County, Missouri. Police believe a couple found dead in their South St. Louis County home died of COVID-19. Officers were called to a house on Glen Bay Drive last Thursday. They say there were no signs of foul play. The couple was in their 40s. Family members say both had tested positive for COVID-19 and were showing symptoms of the virus. The person who found that couple dead of COVID was their 11-year-old daughter. That couple has one child who was in the home as her parents tried to recover. Good evening, I'm Ann Allred. And I'm Mike Bush. It happened in South St. Louis County. The couple was found in a home on Glen Bay Drive off Lime Ferry Road and Victory Drive. Five on your side's Robert Townsend with what we're learning from neighbors. Right now there are lots of heavy hearts here on Glen Bay Drive in Melville. So it's really a terrible, tragic thing. Chuck Dewey cannot believe what happened to his neighbors. St. Louis County Police say last Thursday morning, the husband and wife were found dead in their bed. Police say both were in their 40s and both died of COVID-19. Supposedly she had gone to the hospital. They thought she had a stroke. She tested positive, but they sent her home. And then uh, her husband, meanwhile, was home with a uh, positive test for COVID. And uh, so they both were quarantined. Dewey says the couple stayed downstairs in their bedroom in their basement. Neighbors also say the couple's 11-year-old daughter, their only child, made the tragic discovery. To lose both parents at one time, you know, for an 11-year-old, uh, it's, you know, really tragic. When uh, we're praying for them, they're the nicest people. When we were... We're so happy they moved into the neighborhood. An 11-year-old girl finds her parents dead in bed. We memorialize the dead of Chicom 19 on The Mark Stein Show because they are all victims of a war crime, a war crime against the planet. As things stand, the balance of probabilities favors some lab origin of this virus rather more than some bat. But even if you discount all that, just the Chaikom's actions in sealing Wuhan off from the rest of China, but keeping going that express check-in line for international departures, was an act of war. Almost 200 countries are the victims of it, and China should pay reparations, as we were talking about on the 100 Years Ago show. But the left is all about lockdown without end, and the right is mostly about COVID scoffing, and it's hard to demand China pay for a joke. And so there is no one to avenge that 11-year-old girl and all the other victims of Chairman Xi around the globe. To kind of circle back, as everyone now says for some reason, Serge Gainsbourg died 30 years ago today, the worn and ravaged enfant terrible of Franco-pop, the heavy breathing on this record, made with his then-wife Jane Birkin, got it banned by the BBC, so naturally it went to number one. Je vais 
je veux et je viens Entre tes morveins Je vais et je viens Entre tes morveins Et je Joe Biden sniffing my hair to get me whimpering like that. Enough of all that. To go back to where we came in, here's Carla Bruni, the wife of the now-convicted President Sarkozy, singing a Serge Gainsbourg song. It's got the usual underpowered dirge-like melody that passes for a tune in the Gainsbourg oeuvre, but it has an arresting image that has stayed with me through all the decades. The River of Memory flows into the ocean of oblivion and is lost. And I think of all the stories of COVID, all the victims of an evil Chinese regime, all the rivers of memory flowing into one great ocean of oblivion and being entirely forgotten. Madame Sarkozy. Tu t'en vas à Du souvenir et moi courant sur la rive, je te crie de revenir. Mais lentement, tu t'éloignes et dans ta course et Je te regagne un peu du terrain perdu de temps en temps tu t'enfonces dans le liquide mouvant ou bien frôlant tu hésites et tu m'attends en te cachant la figure dans ta robe retroussée de peur que te défigure. La honte et les regrets Dans le ruisseau 
de l'oubli brisant nos cœurs et nos têtes à jamais nous réunir. Carla Bruni singing a Serge Gainsbourg song, La Noyer, The Drowned Girl, The River of Memory, dissolving in an ocean of oblivion. That will do it for today's show. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.